0: Hello, welcome to The Lake Podcast, where we speak to authors on their recent books on South Asia. I'm Karthik Nachipan, the host of The Lake Podcast. In 1994, a retired U.S. Foreign Service officer, Dennis Cox, who spent a big chunk of his diplomatic tenure in South Asia, penned a book on India-U.S. relations called Estranged Democracies, that cataloged how different events during the Cold War, the American tilt toward Pakistan, the Bangladesh crisis in 1971, and India's close relationship with the Soviet Union, redounded to hurt India-US relations during the Cold War. Kux maps a narrative where relations between India and the United States remained more or less lukewarm, oscillating between euphoric hope for close ties and repeated disappointment, having failed to achieve that outcome. What was puzzling and undeniable was that the two democracies, the world's oldest and the world's largest, and the offspring of common British political, legal, and linguistic traditions would be estranged. But perhaps this divide should have been expected since both countries had rich democratic traditions that would subject the bilateral relationship to intense scrutiny. Democracy, in other words, mattered deeply when it came to how the relationship would unfold over the centuries much before India herself became independent in 1947. Yet the India-United States story and history, puzzlingly, has seldom been covered or unpacked through the frame of democracy till now. Today I will speak to Nico Slate, a historian at Carnegie Mellon University and the author of Lord Cornwallis is dead published by Harvard University Press in 2019 the book is a sprawling history of India-US relations conveyed through the endless struggle for freedom and democracy in both countries the range and breadth of the book is truly breathtaking covering social political Spiritual, intellectual, legal, and developmental issues that have knitted both countries since the British left the United States in the late 1700s, right after Lord Cornwallis. The last British general surrendered to the American rebels that led to the founding of the United States. Here is Nico Slate. On Lord Cornwallis is dead the Struggle for Democracy in the United States and India I, I want to begin by asking how you came to write this book. Your previous book, uh, Colored Cosmopolitanism: The Shared Struggle for Freedom in the United States and India, looked at the hidden history and connections between US and India, with a focus on activists who worked across borders of race and nation uh, to push both countries toward democratic progress. Did Cornwallis grow out of that book?
1: Yes, it did. It grew out of that book and also out of a course that I've taught for many years that looks at the long history of connections between the United States and India. Like uh, many scholars, I teach things in order to try to learn about them. And that course taught me a tremendous amount about the history of links between the US and India. My first project called Cosmopolitanism, as you mentioned, looked particularly at the connections between the African-American freedom struggle and similar struggles, both against uh, imperialism, caste, and other forms of oppression in South Asia. But even while I was working on that project, I kept realizing that this is part of a larger story of connection, which is also a story of disconnection. Uh, As you said, it's a project about democracy, but it's not a celebratory project, at least not in its entirety, because one of the things that really struck me in my first book and then again in Lord Cornwallis is Dead is just the way that even as these two remarkably vibrant and lively uh, democracies in the making are connected, those connections are often born of misunderstanding. They're often very self-interested, uh, whether in the sense of nationalistic or even in more limited conceptions of the self, whether we're talking about race or caste or other forms of identity. So this is a, it's a project that tries to step out and look at the broad sweep of connections between these two remarkable countries, which are, as, a, as you know, often celebrated as the two, or, uh, as the, the two largest democracies in the world. I want to recognize the achievements of these countries and the way that their histories have helped them both establish those achievements, but I also want to reveal uh, how much remains to be done.
0: Right. Uh, the book is truly breathtaking in scope and canvas. Uh, in, its grap- in its grasp of U.S. and their relations, unpacking the many bridges, political, economic, cultural, and intellectual, that have connected both countries. Um, You have chosen to anchor these seemingly disparate strands on democracy. Uh, Conceptually, how does democracy lend itself here as a framing mechanism to you?
1: It's a great question, and it wasn't immediately obvious to me what the framing mechanism would be. I was tempted to use the idea of freedom, which of course is often uh, connected in people's minds to democracy, but they're very different ideas. I was tempted to start with freedom, but over time I came to realize that although there is a tremendous amount of cultural history in this book, there's a tremendous amount of intellectual history, economic history, that the real heart of this book for me has to do with the relationships between those other strands and the political history that I really came to see as the central defining arc of the narrative. And within that, within that arc, uh, the, the, the key goal that I see many different people on both uh, sides of this relationship. The, the key goal that people are striving for is democracy. And it's not, um, it's not a simple conception of electoral democracy. I actually think that's a really important point, something that I hope people will take from the book. The democracy is not just about having elections on a certain regular schedule. It's not even about the freedoms that we tend to associate with democracies like freedom of speech, for example. There's a broader reach in the democratic vision of many of the figures in this book, someone like a W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, or a Tarek Nath Das, um, or, you know, within the South Asian context, many of the, the founders of, of, of India, right? From Gandhi to Nehru and others. These are figures who are, uh, I'll add Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay, who's one of my favorite figures to write about. These are all figures who imagined a democracy that extended beyond uh, the rough structure of politics to include a more expansive conception of freedom or equality. So I want democracy to be at the heart of the book because I I see it as the the central aspiration of the characters I'm writing about, but also because I wanna help problematize what we understand by by the word democracy.
0: Right. Uh, In terms of structure, the book is divided into three keywords um, Mm -hmm. that form uh, chapters thereafter, Indian, caste, and thug, uh, and I wanna explore each word with you further. Uh, the word Indian was fraught with significance in the 19th century. Many Americans used the term to refer to Native Americans and Indians from the subcontinent, uh, two very different connotations. Uh, you write in the book that the word Indian was defined less by its origins than its utility. How was the term used in 19th century America?
1: Mm. It was used in a variety of ways. And it's a great example that I was trying to get at before about how connections can in fact be disconnections or misconnections, right? Because the the very idea of of Indians in the context of the Americas is of course, uh, born of a a great mistake. One of the most famous mistakes in history, right? Christopher Columbus thinks he's reached the Indies and thus we have Indians uh, all around the world. That mistake Um, create a template that historical actors can employ for their own ends. Um, Consider missionaries. Uh, Missionaries in the US often linked the so-called heathens, right, the non-Christians within this country to non-Christians in other parts of the world. And they saw really a fundamental connection between their struggles to convert uh, people that we would sometimes call Native Americans with, uh, with the people of the subcontinent. So from, from the perspective of the missionaries, what the, what the word Indian does is it helps facilitate a particular conception of religious hierarchy in which all the peoples of the world that are not Christian need to be saved or salvaged together. But then others will take up that word and employ it in quite a different way. So I mentioned uh, Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay earlier um, someone like uh, Chattopadhyay or like, uh, or like Cedric Dover, who I've written about as well. Um, these are figures who come from the subcontinent to the United States. And while they're here, try to form their own solidarities of resistance between the struggles of Indians in India and Indians in the United States. So what could be uh, and was in the 19th century often used as a form of hierarchy, uh, whether based on religion or race as well, can be flipped and used to create solidarities.
0: Right. Uh, One interesting aspect of this that you bring out of the book was uh, this differed based on geography as well. Mm. Indians were treated differently in Western United States and in the Eastern part of the United States. Um, Would you like to share more about that?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. It's one of the most fascinating um, uh, pieces of the project for me in part because Uh, I have always had a strong connection to the history of Indian Americans. I think this is a story that has not been told well enough. And in some ways, it's the core narrative of the book. If you're thinking about how India and the United States are linked, well, you have to start with the fact that people linked these two places, people who came from the subcontinent to the U.S. Of course, there's some Americans that go to India, and I write about them in the book. But really, the, the, uh, the true significant story is about people coming from India to the U.S., Um, And when they come to the US, they spread out and they move to all different parts of the country and they have very different experiences based on where they end up. Uh, So on the West Coast where there's a strong, um, deep-seated antipathy to Asians of all sorts, right? To people coming from China, um, Japan, uh, and Korea eventually, um, Indians get slotted into that general, Conception of Asia and they're discriminated against because of it. There's a horrible riot in Bellingham, Washington Which I think some readers will already be familiar with but many many Americans at least have no idea about the the history of anti-Indian bias On the west coast, but it was a tremendous force uh, with tremendous violence On the opposite side of the country. However, being Indian could be a much more ambivalent uh, situation Um, So in the south for example in the American south at a time of profound discrimination against people of darker skin, if someone was able to distinguish themselves as being from India, it could actually help them get around, if not entirely, to some degree, get around the racial um, codas of that day. And so we even find African-Americans who wear turbans and take Indian names in order to try to avoid the strictures of Jim Crow. And the North, uh, New York, Chicago, etc., is kind of in between. Uh, And so there isn't the same deep seated anti Asian bias that we find on the West Coast wearing a turban in Chicago or New York or Pittsburgh, where I am now, would most likely um, attract some degree of interest and perhaps respect, Um, whereas on the West Coast, it very quickly became uh, a dangerous thing, right, Um, to to wear a turban, it could signal you uh, out for some form of discrimination. On the other hand, there was also anti-Indian discrimination in the the big cities of the the East Coast. Um, Often Indians were lumped together with African-Americans and other people uh, of darker skin. Uh, So you see a sort of spectrum of how Americans tried to make sense of these people coming in, people who are sometimes called Indians, but also here's another interesting wrinkle, they're often also called Hindu, right? Uh, Regardless of their religious background. So Muslims, Sikhs, and others are all lumped together as Hindus um, which is at times a derogatory label, right? They're uh, attacked, particularly in the West Coast, but also in other parts of the country, there's this tremendous reverence for Hinduism, right? That goes back to the transcendentalists and others. So it's a, it's a very rich history, which I think comes all the way up to the present day. If you look at the role of Indian Americans in the United States today, um, you, you see that on the one hand, they're often described as a model minority, who have succeeded economically, culturally, and otherwise, and are able to separate themselves from other people of color. On the other hand, they're often they often face discrimination, particularly in the wake of 9/11 uh, and the, just the generalized fear of dark-skinned others. That sadly, we're still struggling with in this country. Uh, so, you know, being an Indian in this country today is a very mixed thing. Uh, sometimes it can be, a, a, you know, an opportunity to distinguish oneself. Right Uh, and to to rise up economically, culturally, but other times it can also be a a real liability. So that that mixed legacy is still with us.
0: Um, Speaking of um, Indians in the East and West Coast, uh, race was also central uh, to connections and links between both countries in the 18th and 19th centuries. And you vividly describe Uh, some encounters which uh, include influential American uh, figures like U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant and Mm -hmm. Mark Twain, who visited India, and Indian figures like Swami Vivekananda and Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay, who the book is dedicated to, um, that traveled across the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, Race was a very vexing uh, issue that both countries also had to confront internally. Uh, And these prejudices invariably affected Indian migrants and visitors in the United States. Uh, Some Indian figures, uh, like the book's, uh, who features on the book's cover, uh, Bhagat Singh Thind, sought to erase this um, racial identity gap by seeking to classify themselves as whites. Mm. Um, How did race influence and affect India-US ties early on?
1: In so many ways. uh, And that's part of the challenge, actually, for us looking back is to try to parse the many ways that race mattered without assuming that those ways were akin to the way race matters in our world today. This is part of, I think, the challenge of understanding race and racism is that it's so pervasive in our world and in the past that it's easy for people to think, oh, well, we know that story already. Oh, of course there was racism in the U.S. in The 19th century or the 18th century of course there was racism in colonial India but as a historian what I think is so important is to track how what race meant in fact did change dramatically over time and also varied based on geography and and uh, also uh, based on particular individuals Uh, people were able to find different ways around it Bugat Singh Thind is a wonderful example of the complexities. And I was so happy we were able to get that cover on the photo because I love the cover. I think it fits the title quite well as well. Thind is a tricky figure. On the one hand, one could potentially criticize him for trying to separate himself from other dark-skinned people in order to sidestep rather than directly confront the racism of the day. So in his case, the main issue was citizenship. He was a veteran of the First World War, had fought in the United States Army. Uh, uh, he, or w- uh, well, at least was in the United States Army. He was um, a, a longstanding resident of the United States and he wanted to become a citizen. But the laws of, at that time stipulated that in order to become a citizen, you either had to be of African descent, and that was a legacy of the Civil War, or you had to be a white person. And that was the word that was used, white. And so thinned really had two options. He could either just accept the fact that he wasn't going to become a citizen. Uh, well, actually, I'll say three options. He could have fought to change the law, and that's important. Or he could do what he did, which is to try to convince a series of judges that by dint of his Aryan or Caucasian ancestry, and both of those are very loaded terms, right, which has this long pseudoscientific history, he could use that uh, very complicated fundamentally racist history in order to try to advance his own claim for citizenship. And that's what he did. And of course he succeeds as many other Indians had uh, at getting judges to certify their whiteness in part because many racial scientists of the day saw particularly Northern born um, higher caste Indians as being Caucasian, Aryan, and thus white. He succeeds all the way up until the Supreme Court um, in which this famous case Um, decides that, no, in fact, he's not white because the common man would not see him as white and thus other Indians are not white. It's a catastrophic decision for the Indian American community because now all of a sudden, all of these people that had been granted citizenship were faced with it being revoked. There were deportation proceedings. People that had bought land, particularly in the West, were worried that they were gonna lose that land because in California, for example, the law said that in order to own land, you had to be eligible to become a citizen. So there are tremendous consequences to this. One could criticize Thind for not forging solidarities with other people of color and fighting to change the fundamental law. Um, But I'm more more tempted to be sympathetic, even while as a historian, I would do my best just to make clear the facts of the case. I also wanna try to convey the realities that Thind and other Indian Americans were living within and to understand what was driving their struggle and also to realize that then even in his own way helped break down some of those boundaries. His case, even though it was, it was ultimately defeated, um, his case helped raise issues that others were then able to pick up and champion and fight, uh, and fight to change. So I, I, I think the, the, that's a good example of just the complexities of the way that race operated um, in, in the United States. In, in South Asia, of course, you have race uh, largely thanks to the British but you also have caste, uh, which is not the same as race, but is in many ways akin. Uh, and so Americans coming to India were confronted with a situation that they were very quick to understand as uh, equivalent to racism, but was also in many ways quite different for them. So the complexities create opportunities for people to, uh, that, that then become choices and they have to decide, well, where am I gonna stand here? What am I gonna fight for? I dedicate the book to Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay and to Polly Murray, these two remarkable women, both of whom decided to try to fight, uh, to break down all of these forms of discrimination, to try to create a world in which people could um, pursue true democracy regardless of their skin color, regardless of their caste, regardless of their gender, religion, etc. cetera. That's, um, th- those are the figures that I'm ultimately most sympathetic to. But the book is full of people like Thin that are more complicated and yet in their own way are fighting, I think, for something important, something worthy.
0: Um, well, let's, let's talk about the other issue which you just mentioned now, uh, caste. Mm. Um, caste, a highly loaded term in both the American and Indian context. And you very carefully unpack how Americans imported this foreign term or idea as a descriptive and rhetorical tool for various purposes. Now, many people in New England would have probably heard of the term Boston Brahmins, and you talk more about that in the book. Um, American presidents, no less, a figure like JFK um, spoke about caste and not uh, importing the caste system within the United States um how did caste intersect with and complicate issues related to race in the united states Mm.
1: it's a it's a very important question and one of the strongest links between my first book colored cosmopolitanism and lord cornwallis is dead in colored cosmopolitanism one of the main arguments that i wanted to advance was that the link between the african-american freedom struggle in india always operated on two separate but linked axes. One was uh, race empire, right? mm-hmm. In which um, the black struggle for freedom was equivalent to the Indian struggle for freedom against British rule. But there was also always a separate uh, form of connection or analogy, if you will, between race and caste. And these two analogies were sometimes used by the same figures, sometimes used by opposing figures. And I carry that forward into this book uh, with, in some ways, an even broader uh, uh, question, which is not just how did caste operate to link the black freedom struggle to struggles in India, but how did caste operate more broadly within the context of the United States, where people don't usually think about the word as much. Um, and what I found, and other scholars have done this as well, I, I've benefited greatly from uh, uh, friend of mine, and another scholar named Daniel Imavar, who's written a wonderful article about this. Um, what, what is so striking to me is that um, caste becomes extraordinarily common within the American vocabulary and is used in many different ways by many different figures, even to the point where it becomes uh, in, in the early 20th century, a kind of standard element of American sociology of race. Uh, So there's a so-called the so-called caste school of American race relations, which wants to argue and does argue that that racism in the United States is fundamentally equivalent to a caste system. And I think the 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 danger of this approach, other than the fact that it blurs uh, both the complexities of caste within South Asia, It, it makes all kinds of assumptions about what caste means in India, which turn out to be completely false. Um, but it also uh, obscures the complexities of race in the United States. And so there, it becomes a very rigid conception of caste in which um, there's a, a strong hierarchy um, based on race and class, um, and in which the presumption is that people who are at the bottom of that hierarchy have been led to accept it. That's, I think, one of the most troublesome ways in which caste gets employed to understand race in the United States and in India, for that matter in both uh, contexts, um, American scholars in particular, come to feel that the people at the bottom of the hierarchy have accepted things when in fact they hadn't. And they come to see that this has been a, a sort of age old system, uh, when in fact it had been constantly contested and fought against over time. So there's, um, there's ways in which, uh, many ways in which the use of the race cast analogy are troublesome, however, um, I also think one of the most striking things for me in really tracing the evolution of the idea of caste within the American context is that there are also a lot of figures uh, who use it in order to pressure the United States and American political figures to change. Uh, I mean, so you mentioned JFK, for example, but there are many other examples of activists from below as well as you know political figures at the top who say, we don't wanna have a caste system in this country. That's not who we are, right? I mean, the presumption of course is, oh, that's something that those terrible people over in India do, and that itself is very problematic and troublesome. Uh, But within the American context, I think it is still used often in an emancipatory direction, trying to help people, trying to force people to confront the degree to which our own conceptions of democracy remain to be achieved.
0: Fascinating. Um, The book then moves from the 19th century to the 20th century, uh, and some of its key events, uh, like World War II and the Cold War. Um, India's significance to the Allied war effort gave a shot in the arm to advocates pushing for India's independence. Uh, Gandhi and Nehru themselves wrote to US President Franklin Roosevelt, who then, takes up the cause of Indian independence with Churchill um, rather unsuccessfully I might add. Um, You also very interestingly highlight the role of certain Indian Americans who formed an India lobby to get US support for Indian independence and against imperialism. Now a lot of us think that the US, the India lobby in Washington DC is a a recent uh, construct or Uh, event, but you argue that it's not. Um, Now, the United States at that time was also an imperial power um, with many possessions in the Far East. Uh, Did these groups, the India lobby and individuals like Nehru and Gandhi sincerely believe they could persuade the US government to take up their cause and how successful were they?
1: I think they absolutely believed that they could convince the United States to take up their cause and and I don't think they were entirely naive in that uh, conception um, of course the United States was an imperial power. I think there's a good argument that we still are in our own way, sadly, but um, the form that Empire took varied. Um, from direct territorial possessions. I mentioned Daniel Imoar, he's got a best-selling book about um, the degree to which the United States actually had direct territorial um, uh, control in different parts of the world. But there was there is also a way in which American empire was conceived of very differently from the British empire and in a way that would allow for Indian independence if, and this gets us even further along in in the time into the Cold War era, Mm. if India would remain open to American investment, to buying American goods, et cetera. So it's a conception of the relationship between India and the US that um, has its own uh, colonial Mm. uh, ramifications, which of course troubles Nehru in particular and many others on the left of the Indian spectrum. Uh, But I think they have reason to think that uh, that many Americans could be convinced that getting rid of the British Raj would actually be good for American business, right? And not just not just a good thing for the world, but also good for for American business. So I think there were there there were some idealistic um, uh, uh, drivers of the hope that the United States would live up to its promise as a beacon of liberty and freedom. I, just as it happened with Wilson during the First World War, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of literature on how. Uh, um, in the aftermath of the Great War, many, pe- many peoples around the world, including in India, turned to Wilson as, an, as someone who would champion their cause because he talked so much about self-determination, et cetera. Similarly, at the Second World War, there's the same hope that Franklin Roosevelt and um, later Harry Truman and other American political figures will stand up for America's you know, uh, commitment to, to democracy and freedom. In some parts of the world, obviously, that fails dramatically in Vietnam, for example. Um, In South Asia, it's more complicated uh, because there is a degree to which the United States um, and the American government um, speaks up uh, and tries to pressure Churchill and others to uh, grant India autonomy or some, some degree of freedom. In the end, it's it's lukewarm pressure. It's not it's not that important to Roosevelt, and it's very important to Churchill. And so, the, as you said, it it doesn't go doesn't go very far. Um, but but imagine this is hypothetical. Imagine that the United States had approached the British Raj as we would later approach French control of 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 uh, Indochina, Vietnam. Right. Uh, imagine that the United States had poured. Uh, resources into the British Empire, trying to prop it up in the aftermath of the Second World War, and then had even tried to step in. This was actually one of the worries of people like Gandhi and Nehru. They were concerned that the United States, we had something like 200,000 soldiers in India during the Second World War. I loved researching that history, by the way, because there's so many people don't know about it, and it's so rich with fascinating stories. All these American troops, predominantly in Kolkata and other parts of the Northeast. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of Indians worry that they won't leave, right? That the American soldiers are just going to stay. Um, and they didn't. And so I think there is a degree to which the India lobby plays an important role at encouraging American power brokers to see India's freedom as a good thing, as a positive thing. And the key figure, we haven't named him yet, J.J. Singh. There are others that are very important in the India lobby, but the key figure J.J. Singh, I think, deserves a lot more attention than he's received, particularly in, the, you know, there's some good work on in scholarship. Um, you know, there's, there are several good books on the history of Indian Americans in the U S um, but, but I think even within the Indian American community today, many people don't know about JJ Singh and others who really fought both to try to gain India's freedom and to establish the position of Indian Americans in the U S and the last thing I'll say, trying to be as succinct as I can here for you, Karthik. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is that those things were related and people knew they were related. They knew, um, going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, why were Japanese Americans, before the Second World War, of course, why were Japanese Americans treated better than Chinese Americans? Well, it's because Japan was so much stronger, it's a much stronger country. And uh, Indian Americans took a lesson from that and said, well, we need India to be independent so that uh, independent India can then champion our rights in the United States and elsewhere. So these, the India lobby in the US was simultaneously fighting for civil rights in the US for people of Indian descent and for the freedom of India, and they saw those two causes as fundamentally connected as I think they were.
0: Before we get back to the book and connect it to some recent developments, I want to quickly pivot and ask you a few rapid-fire questions. So I'll throw out a few words, and you can respond however you feel like about them.
1: Applied history. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Wow. I just taught a course called Public and Applied History. So I think I have to say that they're uh, either underrated or properly rated. I think it's an incredibly important topic to discuss what it means exactly, is uh, is very open. Uh, at Carnegie Mellon, where I teach, we have a long history of engaging applied history. Actually, the, the concept was in part created by some of my colleagues here, including Joel Tarr at, at Carnegie Mellon. They they shaped what that idea meant. We had a, a whole program focused on applied history. Um, I, I think in the end of the day, for me as a historian, what applied history does is to challenge us to think about our responsibility in the world. and that. Uh, And that in and of itself is a good thing.
0: Uh,
1: Pittsburgh. (laughs) Uh, uh, Throwing a lot of good ones close to my heart here. Uh, I love Pittsburgh. I had no idea I would love it when I moved here. I'm from California originally. Um, I like many West coasters. And I think actually many people that aren't from Pittsburgh um, i I didn't realize how naturally beautiful this city is, how hilly it is, how many beautiful views there are. Um, and I also didn't know much about uh Pittsburgh's current um, economy and and position in the world. you know the the there's a Renaissance story here, it was a city that was once dominated by steel but has now turned to other forms of uh, economic development, u- universities, hospitals uh technology, etc., there's a dark side to that story as well. It's actually related to Lord Cornwallis's dead that just as many people have benefited tremendously from the changes that Pittsburgh has undergone and I'm one of those people, I, I find it quite lovely to live here. Um, there's also a lot of people in Pittsburgh as there are in most American cities that are living in, in great poverty. Um, and we have a tremendous racial divide in this city it's a very segregated city like many American cities. Uh, there's a lot of poverty in the African American community here. In fact, it's one of the worst cities in the US in terms of poverty for African American folks. Uh, and there's a, tremendous, there's a tremendous amount that needs to be done to bridge the divides within this city, to help everybody here to succeed and make the most of, of what is in many ways a wonderful place to be.
0: Right. Bollywood movies set in New York City. <laughs>
1: Uh, wow. Um, well, Bollywood movies are great. New York City is great. How can you go wrong uh, combining them together? I mean, it's just wonderful. I, one of my favorite things about Bollywood movies is that they're so beautifully cosmopolitan in a way that, um, that I think really demonstrates the best of, of, a, of a global conception of the world. Uh, and you know, we, as we talked about in, in the last chapter of Lord Cornwallis is Dead, there are blindnesses, there are things that are left out Um, There's many uh, troubling scenes in the way that Bollywood looks at New York and New Yorkers, whether in terms of race or otherwise. Uh, But there's also just a pure joy in celebrating uh, a wonderful and in itself cosmopolitan city.
0: Um, Area studies.
1: Hmm. Well, that's a rich and complicated history, so bound up with the Cold War, um, and in this country, with a certain kind of neo-colonial project. Um, I, I uh, you know, as a, as a historian, I've benefited tremendously from work that has been done within departments that have historically been defined by area studies, by scholars whose focus is on a particular region of the world. Um, and and to, in, as a transnational uh, h- historian, I'm also someone who believes very strongly in having people whose depth of knowledge in a particular place in a particular region is very strong. And there's also something I think important about the idea of South Asian studies in this mm-hmm. country, um, which is that um, it crosses the crosses the divide of of partition. You know, it brings together India and Pakistan as well as Bangladesh and other parts of South Asia. And I understand why sometimes people don't like the term South Asian, Uh, you know, it's a complicated term in this country and in India and elsewhere. It can obscure uh, important differences. Um, It, it can, um, it can naturalize things that are not in fact natural. Um, But I also think it can be a powerful form of solidarity. Uh, there are many South Asian Americans that I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with that see the term as a as a radical term that is trying to bring people together across divides, um, and I, I for that reason I I like that particular version of a of, of, of various studies. Tagore. Oh. <laughs> uh, I have, uh, I have nothing but respect for Tagore. I, one, of my, um, one of my current students, actually, Arko Dasgupta is working on Gandhi and Tagore, and I'm very excited to keep learning from him. Um, I, um, yeah, goodness gracious, where to start? I, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tagore's works, and I'm also a huge fan of his persona. Uh, you know, uh, He shows up in the book, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. at various points, um, and one of the, one of the things that I find so admirable about, about him is that he's someone who, uh, coming back to cosmopolitanism in his own body crosses the many divides of the world and really speaks for a vision of humanity, which transcends so many of the divides that continue to haunt us.
0: Vegetarianism.
1: Ah, uh, <laughs> um, wow. Well, well, I have a whole chapter on this yeah. in the, in the Gandhi diet book. For Gandhi, um, vegetarianism was not just uh, a religious and ethical commitment, and it was that for him. It was not just a familial legacy, and it was that for him as well. It was also a political commitment. Uh, The vegetarian community that he joins in London as a young law student was his first entree in real activism, and it taught him a tremendous amount about what it means to be an activist. One of the things I find so powerful about vegetarianism in the world today is that I think it can challenge all of us, not just to think about what we eat, but also to think about other facets of how we live. Mm -hmm. Think about climate change, for example, think about food inequality, think about food deserts. Um, So I think it's um, it's it's a very powerful force in the world. and I think it's a good thing.
0: And lastly, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh,
1: Well, I'm hesitant to admit it, but you know, as a fairly typical American male, I had a period in my life where I was a huge fan of of all the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, I I still, you know, uh, I still like Harrison Ford. I I think it's you know profoundly um, troublesome. I would go so far as to say racist in its own way, neo-colonial film that. Um, Uh, you know that deserves the infamous reputation that it has amongst uh, at least those that have studied it closely but like all the films that i talk about in in that last chapter of lord cornwallis is dead um you know it's it's also complicated you can you can find things in it to pull out and to celebrate and that's that's part of why film is so rich and interesting is that um, even the most troubling and troublesome films um, also have something heroic in them.
0: Uh, th- the third and final keyword in the book is Thug. Um, another highly loaded term that comes... Out of colonial India, mm-hmm. um, what do you mean by thug, and why did you choose this word to frame the last part of the book, which looks at the resurgence in U.S.-India relations, marked by progress on the economic front, mm-hmm. um, characterized by aid in the early decades of the Cold War and trade and investment um, after the Cold War.
1: So I'll I'll admit something, which is that I came to Thug as the frame for the last third of the book very much in the way that most of my students do,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: is that you start with just pure fascination with a remarkably rich and interesting history. The history of that word and of the associated concepts is I find just endlessly fascinating. It raises issues of race and racism, of religion, of, of crime and violence, of empire, um, you know, As you know, know, originally the term is employed within the colonial infrastructure Mm -hmm. to describe what is seen as the secret cult of ritual murderers. Um, And there's still an active scholarly um, debate on exactly how much of an invention this was. Um, I tend to lean towards the side of seeing it largely as an invention. Um, It's one that certainly regardless of how true it was um, certainly uh, was useful w- within the infrastructure of of the British Raj, uh, it gets picked up in the American context and, and quite quickly Americanized in a way that it no longer even uh, references India, right? And so you get, um, you know, in the early 20th century, you get references to thugs um, without any conception that it references India or anything of India. And that remains often untrue all the way up to the present day when, of course it has this heavily racialized connotation in the U S it's often associated with African Americans mm-hmm. with, you know, uh, hip hop and rap culture. Um, and yet at the same time, because of Indiana Jones and other American cultural references, there is also some awareness, um, that the idea of thugs and thuggy has this colonial Indian, uh, history. So I found that just incredibly fascinating, but of course, something fascinating doesn't necessarily mean it's that important, and it doesn't mean that it should serve as a frame for a book that's as sweeping as this one is. And so I had to ask myself, um, you know, is this the right word? And I considered many others as a as a frame for that last third of the book, uh, and I ended up coming to thug because I ended up feeling that the uh, the role of the outsider and of those that are pushed outside the pale of, of the state, of the society, of the nation um, has to be reckoned with at, in what could otherwise be quite a celebratory part of the book. I mean, this is the part of the book where India gains its independence, mm-hmm. where the American civil rights movement, right, borrowing heavily from Gandhi and nonviolence, um, creates a, a wonderful series of achievements. And I do want to celebrate those things. I think it's actually really important, particularly for young people in both countries, to recognize just how far we've come. These are tremendous achievements, achievements that did owe something to each other, particularly the civil rights movement. Uh, You know, figures like like Martin Luther King and many others, Pauli Murray is another one drew very actively on Gandhi and Gandhian legacies and other Indians, people like Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay who come to the US and forge their own solidaries with African Americans. So there's many things to celebrate in this period of time, as are the economic linkages you mentioned, right? There's, there's, there's a success story there in India's economy that has to do with ties to the US, the, uh, you know, the whole um, uh, software industry and all these high-tech connections there are reasons to celebrate all these linkages, but there are always people that are left out, that mm-hmm. are left behind, that are pushed out, that are demonized, right? And we can't forget those people. And we can't forget them not only because we owe it to them not to forget them, but also because their story is very constitutive of everyone else's story, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's that's why I ended up deciding to frame this in terms of thought, because I didn't want to lose... Um, what I see is the fundamental argument of the book, which is that the struggle for democracy in both countries depends heavily on links between them. Um, and, and those links are flawed. And so the outcome is flawed uh, so that we, we, get, we get the two world's largest democracies. I think India is a democracy, I think the U.S. is a democracy. Ramachandra Guha at one point says India is a 50-50 democracy, and I often ask my students Um, Is that true? What do you think? What what percentage would you give and what percentage would you give the US? I've rarely found anyone that would give either country 100%. Most people can admit that neither India nor the US are perfect democracies. But I think there are also many reasons to celebrate the achievements of both countries. So what I hope for with the idea of THUG is to convey a sense of um, the outsider, of those that are pushed out, and also to realize that those people that are pushed out are often those that keep fighting in order to try to uh, improve improve our democracy for everyone.
0: Right. Uh, speaking of those that are excluded from these democratic projects, cool. um, I wanna to move to the last chapter yeah. on film. Mm. Um, I imagine the chapter on Bollywood and Hollywood was the most fun to write, and in my case, read. <laughs> um, you argue that both Bollywood and Hollywood films reveal the power of connections between both countries, but they also blind us to existing hierarchies and injustices that are unfolding.
1: Um,
0: The progress that are shown by uh, film does not meaningfully capture the fault lines within both societies. Um, How does film help reveal struggles toward freedom and democracy in both countries, and why does it fall short?
1: Uh, it was it was so much fun to write that chapter. As I said, this book came out of a particular course I teach, uh, which I often call India America with a dash in between, uh, slash in between. Yeah, but there's another course that I taught for many years called India Through Film, in which uh, my students and I watch a different Indian movie every week and talk about what it says about Indian history and society and culture. And oh, what a fun class that is to teach because. Um, I love Indian movies as do most of my students. And so it's just a joy fest. Um, and when I first wrote the first draft of that chapter, uh, it was quite a celebration. It was a celebration of the films. And it was a celebration of the way they reveal the many connections between these two great countries. There's so many movies, many of them, Indian movies, but also some movies produced in the U S that, uh, that, that demonstrate and, and embody in themselves the remarkable history of connections between these two countries. And that itself I find quite uh, beautiful often and, and moving. But as you said, what I came to realize as I worked on that chapter and I rewatched some of these films and I thought more about what they mean, I came to see that even while they beautifully narrate uh, some remarkable linkages and connections, they all also obscure at the same time. Uh, And that again returns to the core argument of the book is that these connections can also be disconnections, they can be misconnections and they can blind us to the work that still needs to be done. So, What I hope readers will take from that chapter other than just a fun read through lots of wonderful movies. um, And I do hope people have fun with the book as a whole. Um, I also hope that they're challenged to think about the power of storytelling, uh, not just cinema, but storytelling more generally as a way to help us celebrate but also to goad us to continued action. Uh, and there are a lot of great films that do this. There are a lot of wonderful films that, that are simultaneously celebrating these sorts of links and challenging us to go forward. You know, I think about like, uh, you know, Shah Rukh Khan's uh, Swadesh, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a film that my students love to watch. It's a heartwarming, you know, classic Shah Rukh Khan film. Um, and one that, in some ways, is a celebration of links between India and the U.S. The power of technology coming together. But you know, there's this wonderful scene that you may remember at the, towards the end of that film, where Shah Rukh Khan's figure, um, it, you know, is confronted by these villagers who argue that you know that um, any effort to learn from the U.S. is is not respectful of Indian culture and traditions, etc. And he says, no that you know to be a real patriot um, is to believe that you can do better uh, and that we should learn from people all around the world that you know the United States is not perfect, India is not perfect, and that what, what we need is for these these two wonderful countries, these two wonderful peoples to come together and to learn together and to keep fighting to achieve the country that they want um, that, uh, that's, a me- that's a message that can be celebratory, but I think is also challenging for us in in really powerful ways. Uh,
0: Before we move to the last part of our conversation, I wanna ask, when you were surveying U.S.-India relations through the centuries, through the lens of democracy, were there issues that you wanted to add in the book but were not able to? Um, I asked this question for a reason. Um, When I was living in Washington, D.C., Mm. I had heard and read uh, many stories of how U.S. judges and justices influenced the shaping of India's constitution Mm. in the early 1950s. Mm. Was constitutionalism something um, that brought both countries together?
1: Mm. So the answer to both of your questions is yes. Um, Yes, constitutionalism and legal history more generally is an important connecting thread and it's not one that i was able to delve into in any kind of detail i gesture very briefly when i talk about embed and his mm-hmm. legacy um but there's there's much more that could be done there and there were there are many f- aspects of this history that i was only able to just touch on um i <laughs> i i came at the project initially with the hope of a certain comprehensiveness this is mm-hmm. One of my faults as a historian, uh, and it is a fault actually, is I like to try to fit everything in. Uh, I don't want to leave anything out. And, and, and yet, if you're going to tell a good story, and if you're going to have a clear argument, mm-hmm. you do have to decide uh, where to draw certain lines. And this is a project, as you said at the outset, it's quite sweeping in time. Mm-hmm. You know, it uh, starts in colonial area, comes fairly up, close to up to the present. We're looking at political history, history of culture, of economics, of migration. Um, there are lots of different figures. And so I did have to draw certain, uh, certain lines. And, uh, and my hope is ultimately that what, what readers will do, as, as you just did yourself, is to recognize those limitations, perhaps using my notes as a starting point and try to dive further in. You know, I tried uh, as often as possible in the notes to this book to recognize just how many wonderful other books and articles have been written on these linkages or on each country uh, and, and to offer my gratitude because this is, this is the kind of book that, while I did a lot of my own research, I also had to rely quite heavily at, at various points on the work that has been done by others. And I try to make that very clear in the text, not just as an act of gratitude, but also so that readers who are interested can say, oh, Actually, I want to know more about the, uh, you know, 200,000 American soldiers in India during World War II, or I want to know more about those missionaries, or I want to know more about Indian Americans in the U.S. South, and, and then they can dive in and they can read more. So it's, it's hopefully for, 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 for everyone, it's a starting point rather than ending point. That's the, I actually think that's the best you can hope for a book. You know, you don't want someone to read a book and put it down and think, well, that's all I ever need to know on that subject. Um, that would be boring. What you want them to say is, wow, this has opened up so many other questions for me and now I can go out and try to answer them. Right.
0: Uh, so since 2000, um, US-India relations have uh, ticked upward, um, mm. propelled by um, increasing convergence on strategic and economic issues. Um, successful American, sorry, successive American administrations have invested in India's rise uh, placing a bet that India could serve as a bulwark against the rising China and Asia. Um, what keywords would a historian writing a book on US-India relations in 2050 use to describe the relationship then?
1: Oh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, my short answer is I wish I knew. I, I, I wish I could look forward in order to look backward on our time today. It's impossible to predict exactly how a future historian will look at our time. And that's actually one of the key lessons that I try to take from history is it's just a certain humility about our current moment. We don't know how others will look at it and so we should be humble as much as possible. I do think sadly that the word thug, the last word I used in my uh, in in my framing, would continue to be important to our current moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look even just at how Um, both nations are struggling with COVID-19 and our current crisis, I think one of the things you see is that there are countervailing tendencies. On the one hand, there are many, many people in both countries that are stepping up to the challenge and trying to bring people together in order to confront this remarkable and remarkably pervasive challenge. On the other hand, there are others who are using this moment to try to drive people apart. Uh, and those countervailing tendencies have always been uh, in in both countries and at the center of the connection between them. Uh, so I, I, think, I think, sadly, a future historian will look at our time and say, well, they were still struggling to achieve the democracy that had been long promised. Um, one can hope that, uh, I don't know, let's give us in this country, I don't know how many months we have until November, uh, we have an important election coming up, but, you know, it, I, I, let's hope that in the next few years, we see a real positive turn in the direction that democracy takes in both countries. But if there's one thing I've learned from history, and I know you have as well, is that you can't just wait for that change to happen. It's only going to happen if all of us fight for it. And this is the legacy of Pauli Murray and Kamala Revi Chattopadhyay, is that um, it's, it's up to us to decide what future historians will write of these days.
0: Um, In the conclusion you write and I quote to achieve the full promise of their democratic aspirations They must recognize the limitations of their democracies, even while continuing to believe in a better future Um, As we speak democracies are under stress in both India and the United States majoritarian politics dominate while minorities are facing extraordinary pressures to justify their very existence Um, some of these nativist impulses also connect both india and the us Mm. like before in the history that you so scrupulously document can individuals and groups reach across these borders to resist these impulses
1: oh absolutely they can and we they can we can we must we have to i don't think we have any other option it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy because our lives are full right now, uh, in particular, with just struggling to get by. Um, many people in this country are, are struggling to find enough food to eat, and obviously, in India, the condition the conditions are quite dire. Uh, so it's it's not as if it's easy or simple. And yet, I think we're all called to forge these solidarities. And I I find great hope and inspiration in the way that many people, particularly young people, are actively struggling to do so. I have many students who are from India. I have many students who are Indian Americans. Uh, Just yesterday, I got an email from a young woman who's Indian American, who is a student at another university asking to learn more about the history of linkages between India and the US, and particularly, how those linkages can be used to forge solidarities in our world today. So there's there are young people who are actively asking the question you just posed. And that I think itself is is hopeful uh, because it's, it's not as if you can say to yourself, well, what we need are solidarities of resistance in order to achieve democracy, let's just go and do it. It's a process, it's a challenge to over, overcome the many obstacles and boundaries that separate countries, that separate people of different races, religions, uh, you know, um, genders, sexualities, but I think I think what we can draw from the past is a clear um, legacy in which those boundaries were crossed and were divided. Uh, let's go back to the history of nonviolence. Uh, you know, the 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 American civil rights movement. Um, demonstrates, amongst many other things, but it demonstrates that that uh, that ideas can be very powerful, and and that strategies and legacies of change can be brought across borders in a way that does fight against those mature, majoritarian impulses that you mentioned. It's been done before, so I, I think absolutely, it's it's been done before. It's being done right now, and it, and we can continue to do it in the future.
0: Well, I very much hope for that as well. Um, finally i want to end by asking what your current projects are and i see here i see that you've just come out with another book um in late 2019 called gandhi's search for the perfect diet what is this new book about gandhi about and what are you working on after that
1: yes yeah, so the the Gandhi book's actually been many years in the making. It, it's, uh, you know, as you know, it's one of the peculiar things about writing and publishing books is that mm-hmm. one can to some degree choose the schedule of the writing, but the publishing is a much more unpredictable process. And so I, I started work on the Gandhi book before the Cornwallis book, and it just took me a long time to get it in the right shape. And so the both books ended up coming out at the same time. Um, the Gandhi book started, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, as a just sort of, wow, this history is so fascinating kind of a project. You know, many, many scholars of Gandhi have mentioned his interest in food. Um, there's a couple books that delve in, in some detail looking at the relationship between diet and his body. But um, I, I felt, and I ended up uh, feeling that much, much uh, had remained to be said about the centrality of diet to Gandhi's conception, not just of his body, but of every facet of his life. His politics, his religion, his relationship to his family were all fundamentally structured by diet. Uh, It was a topic that I would argue he probably wrote about um, at at least as much as, if not more than anything else in his life, his books, his newspaper articles, uh, his letters to people. Even uh, overtly political letters to people would often throw in references to particular recipes or particular nutritional advice, and it's a remarkably complex story. Because as I said, I started off just saying, "Wow, look at how fascinating this is!" Uh, you know, I have chapters on his on his relationship to salt, to sugar, to vegetarianism, um, to farming, to whole grains. But I eventually came to realize that it's also a complicated and at times dark story because Gandhi's obsessions with food and diet could also be quite limiting. Um, And so on the one hand, I think they reveal the man at his best, um, particularly his willingness to change, to continue to experiment, to continue to explore. This is a man who was never content with his life. He was constantly challenging himself to grow and to become more attuned to his own values. And I really admire that. On the other hand, he could be quite obsessive. And he could often force those obsessions on others. And the, his diet really shows both sides of the of the man. Um, I'm I'm a uh, as to the projects I'm working on now. I'm I'm the kind of writer who likes to have a couple different pots on the stove at different points in the project. So if you kind of get tired of one, you can move on to the other, and then you come back, etc. So I kind of have three different projects going right now. I have a book that I wrote. Um, it's really a memoir about my older brother, who was a mixed-race man. His father was from Nigeria. We shared the same mother. Uh, he grew up uh, with me in Los Angeles, a uh, mixed-race African-American man, and really suffered uh, within our racialized society, was the victim of a hate crime uh, when I was 14, and then later died in part as a result of that. Uh, and I wanted to explore him and his life and what it tells us about race and racism in this country. So I have a full draft of that book that I'm now working to just pull into shape and find the right publisher for. And I'm uh, currently going back and forth between a, a project that looks at seven survivors of the 1918 influenza pandemic. This book is obviously connected to our current moment. Um, I It started actually with Gandhi, I, I remembered in thinking about our current moment, I remembered that Gandhi had been deathly ill uh, in 1918. And I wondered, was that influenza or was it not? It turns out it's actually quite complicated and interesting whether it was influenza. Um, and, and then I thought, well, what did Gandhi make of that situation? What did he make of his own illness? What did he make of the pandemic? And what could we learn from that? And so I wrote a bit about that and realized there's a lot to be said, but, but I didn't want to write a whole other book on Gandhi, even though he's my favorite person to think about. Um, So I turned to other um, rich and interesting historical figures that survived that pandemic. Um, The American writer Catherine Ann Porter, the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, the Norwegian painter Edvard Munch, um, the the American painter Georgia O'Keeffe, the writer Franz Kafka and then the Canadian American actress Mary Pickford who is the least famous figure in the book but in her day was actually one of the most famous women in the world. All of these people fell deathly ill um, at that time and survived and so I am writing about what their survival might help us understand about our current moment. Um, that that project is actually close to being done. That's the one, the one I'm working on most actively right now. And then I have this really big sprawling book about the American civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my first book uh, the Colored Cosmopolitanism is about the black freedom struggle. The only part of it is about the classic phase of the American civil rights movement. A lot of, of it is earlier decades. And I've always been drawn to that movement for various reasons and some familial reasons actually. Uh, And I wanted to write something more about it. So I'm writing a big book about the American Civil Rights Movement that's really looking at the relationship between nonviolence and education within the movement. So there'll be a lot in there still about India, about Gandhi and nonviolence, um, but also a lot about the way that African-American figures and other civil rights activists used ideas and education to drive the movement forward.
0: Professor Slate, thank you so much for joining us and sharing more about your book, Lord Cornwallis is Dead, the struggle for democracy in the United States and India.:
1: Thank you, Karthik. It's been a it's been a real pleasure. Thank you
0: And that was Nico Slate, a historian at Carnegie Mellon University and the author of Lord Cornwallis is Dead, The Struggle for Democracy in the United States and India. I'm Karthik Nachipan, and you've been listening to The Lake Podcast.